Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, yesterday, a truly historic day, and I want to talk about that. Obviously, there's a lot of other things that we need to deal with, including um, you know, the fact that we are going back to school, the uh, the debate about the FDA approving vaccinations for children. We have some fan mail that I want to discuss as well. The the GOP Sedition Caucus is uh, is getting worse and growing. What a surprise! Uh, Donald Trump felt the need to uh, to call in, sound off about media coverage. Uh, called into some the Todd Starnes show. In case you haven't heard it, uh, this is the former president of the United States. We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, but we're joined today by my colleague Amanda Carpenter, uh, who has been watching all of this. All of these stories unfold over the last twenty four, forty eight hours. So, first of all, good morning, Amanda. Hey, Charlie. I was going to ask you where your rage meter is today, but but let me get to that a little bit later. Okay. <laughs> okay. So. Were you were you listening in real time when General McKenzie made his announcement? I was not. Okay, so let me let me this place because I'm sure that you 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 heard this, and then what I what I'm asking is what your reaction was because I I I had I had a very very mixed reaction to this. This is General McKenzie in the four o'clock Eastern uh, Eastern time zone hour. Um, announcing that it was all over. It was done. The final plane had left Kabul. The final soldier had left. The 20-year war was over. It was it was the kind of announcement that I'm not sure I heard anything quite like it, uh, at least in my lifetime. I wasn't around, believe it or not, uh, man, I was not around when, when Dwight Eisenhower sent the, the telegram announcing that World War II was over. So this is the closest we're going to get to this. General McKenzie yesterday. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm here to announce the completion of our withdrawal from Afghanistan and the end of the military mission to evacuate American citizens, third country nationals, and vulnerable Afghans. The last C-17 lifted off from Hamad Karzai International Airport on August 30th this afternoon at 3.29 p.m. East Coast time. And the last manned aircraft is now clearing the airspace above Afghanistan. Wow. So what was your reaction when you heard that? I just find it hard to believe. Hmm. I find it hard to believe that the war is over because there are still people that very much wish to fight us. And so we may not be there, but I I still feel as though America is under threat. Um, you know, I, I haven't served in the forces. It's hard for me to talk about these issues. Yeah. But it seems like we are very much leaving things unfinished and unstable. And that's uncomfortable. Well, my reaction was I was I was listening to this, and uh, it, it sort of came as a surprise because I was I was waiting to do something else. And my first reaction was really relief. I was just relieved that it was over. I was relieved that that plane got off. Yeah, I have, I have to admit that this was one of the things that I kept thinking about: how we were going to get out of that airport when everybody was gone, that that at some point you have nobody at your back, right? Because you've turned everything over to somebody else. There's, there's nobody running the airport. There are no soldiers on the ground. Now, obviously there was overflight, but, and, you know, I, I'm going to be very interested to hear the story of how we provided that security, because that struck me as the moment of maximum, maximum danger when you have to leave the perimeter, when you have to pull everybody up, everybody on that airplane, and all you need is one RPG rocket. So I was incredibly relieved at that point. But then I had the same feeling that, you know what, 
it, 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 it does feel like unfinished business. I mean, this is a moment of, uh, this is a really humbling moment. And let's be honest about it. This is defeat. This is retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not a great moment for, uh, f- for America. And then of course there was, uh, there was this from, from General McKenzie that, uh, that if, you know, anybody was tempted to spike the football about this, uh, I, th- I think this, this probably eliminated that, uh, that, that reaction. General McKenzie, uh, General McKenzie admitting that, that we did leave people behind. This is what he said. Look, there's a lot of heartbreak associated with this departure. We did not get everybody out that we wanted to get out. But I think if we'd stayed another 10 days, Louis, we wouldn't have gotten everybody out that we wanted to get out. And there still would have been people who would have been disappointed with that. It's a, it's, it's a tough situation. But I want to emphasize again that simply because we have left, that doesn't mean the opportunities for both Americans that are in Afghanistan that want to leave and, uh, and Afghans who want to leave they will not be denied that opportunity. I think our Department of State is going to work that very hard in the days and weeks ahead. Here's the problem. You, you know, you, you've heard the phrase fog of war. There's also the fog of defeat and retreat. There's a lot of things that we know. There's a lot of things that we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. Uh, I, I, I don't know who to believe anymore when it comes to some of these numbers. And I, I told you, Amanda, a little bit earlier that I'm, I have this nagging fear that, you know, a month or two from now, we're going to read this deep dive in the Washington Post that will say, you know, all these numbers that we heard um, were wrong because of X, Y, and Z, or this is what was really going on. Um, but the fact is that it, it certainly does look like we left people behind. We don't know how many people we left behind. There are people who say that we left lots of special visa people behind, American citizens behind. Um, you're, you're saying, I mean, I... You know, we we have to sort of parse out what is the happy talk like. Hey, there's plenty of opportunities, and hey, we have this piece of paper with the Taliban. But the reality is that we took off, and they're still there. Yeah, listen, I get real talk, and there's no happy endings really when it comes to this kind of thing. That said, I cannot believe we are hearing them say, "Yeah, we left people behind." And what, like, what are the other opportunities to, to get out? All the other private organizations that have flooded the zone to try to get all the refugees out so far. Just We're just going to cross our fingers and hope that, oh, maybe maybe these little pipelines can get people out. We'll see what happens. I, you know, as we, we all recognize, I think, by now, if you're going to get out, there needed to be a plan to streamline the visa program and get people out that deserve to get out. But it just seems like the Biden administration is saying, well, we'll just get some people on planes and rely on the goodwill of other volunteers who are going without sleep, scrambling, just scrambling to save the lives of their friends. We're just going to hope that works. I mean, is that what they're saying? I, it's, it's very hard to see like what, what the scenario is other than, oh, well, this happens. No, I mean, there's, there's something kind of surreal about watching these people come to the podium and saying that they will hold the Taliban accountable for this or that. How? Okay, we're gone. The windows are closed. The doors are gone. Uh, you know, you're, you're mentioning the, these incredible acts of heroism by people in the you know, non-government organizations in the private sector, retired military operators. Um, it, it's almost like we've privatized uh, Dunkirk in this particular case. Well, of course, Dunkirk was privatized. In a, but like without in a, any plan to actually outsource yeah. it, just just I, right. see what happens. And we know that I, people care a lot and, you know, d- depend, phone a friend. This is the phone a friend refugee strategy. 
Look, I, I, I do think that it's legitimate to say uh, that, you know, that the administration inherited a really bad hand. I mean, we do have the, mm-hmm. we do have the uh, Trump-Pompeo surrender, the forced release of 5,000 prisoners. I, I think just as significant in many ways, given what's happened, uh, the, the real slowdown on the processing of the special visas. Remember that, you know, until January 20th, we had a president uh, who had once announced that he was proposing the complete and total ban of all Muslims from the United States. We had an immigration policy run by Stephen Miller, who uh, made it very, very clear that he did not want refugees to come to this country. So to the extent that there was a tremendous slowdown in our ability to get Afghans out, you know, we do have to look back at that. On the other hand, Look, um, I'm I'm sorry. I know that some people are frustrated at the level of criticism directed at the at the Biden administration, uh, but there was this was a botch job, and there were a lot of decisions that were made that are, that are highly questionable. I do think that it's also, I mean, and you know, the, the, the one mitigating factor is the is the role of the Afghan president. You read about the the Washington Post had a great TikTok of the last uh, you know 24 hours of the fall of Kabul. The president President Ghani. Um, who, uh, uh, you know, everybody expected would be able to hold on, um, was, you know, was, was giving no indication that he intended to completely surrender. Um, he bugged out of the country based on false information. Somebody told him that the Taliban was in the presidential palace. They were hunting for him. It turns out that was not true. But he left and he told no one. And no one in the Afghan government or the American government had any idea that President Ghani was going to bug out without any warning whatsoever that weekend. And that that obviously was a huge shock to Americans, but it was also a huge shock to the Afghan government. And it was also a shock to the Taliban, who apparently were sitting around going, what are we going to do? Was we, we supposed to take Kabul? Are we supposed to wait? What, what What's going to happen? So I understand all of those factors. But these images are going to be, this is going to be tough for Joe Biden to shake, isn't it? Here's my problem. Why do we only look to the president and his administration to handle this? Like, listen, I I have criticism for Joe Biden, but I also have criticism for the Congress that has completely given up its war-making powers to the executive branch. Yes, Trump is a problem. Yes, Obama was a problem. Yes, Bush bashed some things. Yes, Biden isn't getting out in, in the way that we all want. But what has Congress done to conduct any meaningful oversight over this 20-year-long war since they signed, you know, the war authorizations in 2001 and 2002? You tell me, how do you spend trillions of dollars without ever defining an objective for success? You have 535 people who mostly have been completely willing to just throw this on the president's desk and complain about ever which which way it comes out. I mean, I have a huge problem with that. Well, that's true. There's no question about it. Um, you know, it, it is interesting, a little historical footnote, that, that Harry Truman, senator from Missouri, became prominent because he headed up a committee looking into uh, army waste um, mm-hmm. during World War II. I mean, this was a period of, you know, maximum... Uh, patriotism. But back then, the Senate really did take its oversight responsibility seriously. And he ends up being named vice president uh, as a result of his oversight investigation into ways. But okay, I completely agree with everything you're saying about the role of of Congress, which increasingly, uh, you know, seems to be okay with uh, allowing themselves to be turned into potted plants. But 
the bottom line, the buck stops with the president who is the commander in chief. And that's always going to be the case in, sure. in, in warfare. Congress was not going to specifically manage the, the withdrawal or the particular policy here. So this well, is Well, I mean, can I just push back a little bit on sure. that? I mean, we've been in this. They voted for it. They voted for it in 2001. So why shouldn't we expect someone oh, no. to press the administration to have definable objectives for success? I mean, I— You've all been dealing with this since 2001. What was the objective? To go kill Saddam, Osama, build a Western-style democracy, to make Afghan a stable country, to kill the drug industry? Like, what was it? Give give me three things that we set out to accomplish. Impress officials on that. But this thing was so open-ended. And then when two guys decide to fly over there at the end to see what is going on, Seth Moulton and Peter Meyer... Everybody jumps on them and accuses them of a publicity stunt. I mean, we're talking about two veterans of these wars. And I understand logistical challenges. It's not advisable for members of Congress to fly into war zones. But we're not talking about like Nancy Pelosi here. who have to wrap up in bubble wrap to get off a plane. These are veterans of the war. They served over there. Um, it's All I can see is that the Pentagon is pointing out to attention that was diverted from the planning of operations. Well, guess what? My attention was diverted that day, too, by the fact they went over there. Um, And then they came back with information. They wanted to extend the deadline. And they said, yeah, you know what? We, We need to wrap this up. And so I understand that's controversial, but I give them a lot of leeway because of the fact that so few other members of Congress expressed any interest in this cause that has resulted in trillions of dollars in spending, thousands of people dying, and you know, thousands, trillions probably more to come, and a lot of strife and a lot of unevenness. And now at the end, we're all supposed to be happy. I have all these, you know, liberals, good intention, telling me, well, look, look at this, all the people we airlifted on such short notice. Yeah, that is an amazing feat. Um, but why was it short notice, number one? And number two, was this the plan? Was this the ideal plan for the Afghanis to get out? Are they happy with the fact that because of this abrupt withdrawal, they had to fight their way through crowds in the airport under risk of death and the hope of getting on a plane? Was that what they planned? Was that their plan to become a new American? I don't think so. I mean, I'm glad they they got out 100%. They should be taken care of. I support any kind of aid that they should get. But I don't think that was on their agenda for August. You know, I, I, when, I, when, I, when I first saw it, I thought it was kind of a cheap shot. The more I thought about th- this analogy that, 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 that's coming up, somebody um, was, was saying that, you know, focusing on how great the airlift was would be a little bit like talking about uh, the Titanic in terms of being the most successful lifeboat operation in history. Um, no. Uh, the music that, was great. The music was great. So, by the way, just, you know, in, in, in passing, you mentioned that Congress voted for this in 2001. I've been listening to a lot of the commentary. And to be honest with you, there are a lot of people that have kind of forgotten that there was a real significant political distinction between the war in Afghanistan and the war in mm-hmm. Iraq. The war in Iraq was quite controversial. Many, many Democrats voted against it. Yeah. The war in Afghanistan was not controversial. Only one Democrat in the House voted against it, Barbara Lee. And it had bipartisan support up until America decided to forget about it. And but so, my, there, but it, hold on. My recall is that there was no. never an explicit vote to no. go into Afghanistan. 
it was only for necessary and appropriate force against nations, organizations, and persons mm-hmm. um, that planned, authorized, or committed or aided the terrorist sure attacks right. that occurred on September 11th. I know because, because I pulled it. Yeah. I mean, this is the everlasting authorization of military force that has been used to justify a lot of operations in many countries. I mean, this is the problem. If you never define what you're going into, you can never get out. So, you know, part of the debate right now is we have is whether or not this is a moment of really humiliating defeat and betrayal or whether or not this is just a messy end uh, to a to a, a misguided war. And there are people, of course, who are saying that, look, you know, Joe, Joe Biden deserves a lot of praise for the fact that he had the guts to be able to end this. Yes, it ended badly, but it was always going to end badly versus those who are saying, look, um, this this did not have to be this way. We betrayed our allies. We betrayed our own honor. And 20 years of work, in term, and including 20 years of real progress in Afghanistan, has just been thrown away. So I, I don't know where you come down on all of that, because, you know, to, to, a, to a certain extent, you, you know, that this is why I, th- I think Americans have mixed feelings about this. People talk about, well, the American people want. The American people have not thought about this for more than a decade. The American people wanted it to be over. They wanted it to be out of mind. They didn't want it. They did not want it to be this way. And when you basically put it in front of them, do you understand that we have, you know, a generation of young Afghan women who, you know, built a society um, and now it's going to be wiped away. And they didn't necessarily think of this as an endless war with with American occupiers. And many of them never even saw an American soldier. And they really thought that we were going to make sure that they didn't return to the Middle Ages. So there is that element of betrayal. On the other hand, I do think that most Americans, you know, want our want our service people home. So, I mean, you know, this is the, am- this is the ambiguity. This is the ambivalence of it. This is why I'm, I'm sitting there yesterday listening to this and realizing, you know, I just, I have such mixed feelings about all of this. I mean, I watched Richard Engel on NBC talk about, you know, how the Afghans are just, you know, are, are just horrified and disappointed and shocked by what we had done. Uh, and, and yet on the other hand, listening to, you know, the, the folks who say, look, we've been there for 20 years. We spent trillions of dollars. This was obviously a failed mission, military mission, and we need to move on. And I, and I understand why both those arguments are appealing at the same time. I guess on one front, I, I wonder what a lot of Afghan people heard when they heard president after president after president say we were going to leave the region. Because that's been happening since Obama. Not that, you know, I'm, I'm not blaming them at all. I just am curious why no one believed that. But secondly, that's just as point. an American, that's, we've invested so much in this project. Yeah. I find it extremely hard to come to terms with that we don't even have like an operating base there. Nothing. Why, why don't we have anything there? We have bases all over the world. And if it only took 2,500 soldiers to keep this problem capped, I don't, I, I don't have a huge problem with that. That's not a forever war. I, I feel like there could have been perhaps some more creative thinking about why we need a permanent strategic base here um, to just conduct operations and to do, uh, do training exercise with our allies. I don't know. I'm not a military person, but we don't have anything there now. After yeah, well, no, all I mean, this, I, I, I mean, I, we don't have to create a Western-style democracy that holds elections yeah. to have an operating base. 
No, I I understand the argument to people who say, look, um, g- given the fact that that uh, that Donald Trump had essentially given Afghanistan to the Taliban. I mean, when when they made that deal, they had cut the Afghan government off at the at the knees, and the twenty five hundred mm-hmm. were able to be unmo- were unmolested for a year because they knew we were leaving. So if Joe Biden comes in and says, "Hey, I'm not leaving, we're staying." Then, then I do think he probably would have had to surge more troops into the country. Um, that ceasefire would have come to an abrupt end, um, you know. And I, I appreciate yeah. the the analogies that we still have troops in Korea and Germany, etc. But um, let's let's be honest about it. I mean, that that's a very different situation. You don't have suicide bombers. You don't have an ongoing military operation going on. All of that. But I do think that I. I, I I, I think that the decision to shut down Bagram Airfield and to leave all of those bases basically in the dead of night, I think those are going to look very bad in retrospect. Okay, so, hey, um, did you hear, hear that uh, the former guy called into a, uh, a radio talk show? The Thankfully, Todd's, no. Todd Starnes, Todd, <laughs> Todd Starnes, I think, was fired from Fox for being too crazy and extreme, but he's got his own show, which means that the president's going to call in. I mean, Do think about this. Mean- the, the president <laughs> of the United States calling into this crackpot radio show. I don't know. Anyway. So, I mean, is it any different than Alex Jones? We know Donald Trump will call anybody right. who will give him an open mic. Right, I mean, so, if you said nice things about it for two days, he'd call you. Oh, not, oh, that, not that you're Alex Jones. Sorry. It's, I didn't very, it's, that. it's very unlikely he will end up on the, on the, on the Bulwark podcast. Anyway, so he's <laughs> calling in and, and listen what he's upset about. The former leader of the free world um, on the, on the, the, the final day of the, of the Afghan war, he's upset about the media coverage. Listen to this. We have the people, uh, they're not taking this. They, they are not taking what's happening in Afghanistan. And, you know, if you look last night, all they talked about was the hurricane. You look at CNN and you look at, uh, MSDNC, these are horrible. They're way down. Fortunately, they're way down in ratings. But all they want to talk about is the hurricane or anything else that they can talk about, because Afghanistan is not something that can can even be discussed in a rational way. The level of stupidity. Uh, and we had a great agreement. In fact, even great Biden agreement. admitted the other day he made yeah. a mistake because yeah. he, they didn't want him to say that. But he said it. It's probably the only truthful thing he said. That no people have been killed since this agreement was signed. We had okay, so this is the drunk at the end of the bar thing, and and yet there are millions of people who will be going, yeah, let's put him back in the White House in two thousand. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah, the yeah, media Biden didn't is cover acting it. on the agreement I negotiated, and it's a disaster, well, and you should cover it. Well, yes, yes, but <laughs> but the whole idea that the media. We're spending too much time on that hurricane. They didn't yeah. want to write and talk about Afghanistan. Like, yeah, you, you may not have noticed this, uh, Amanda, but there was no media coverage of Afghanistan. Yeah, and, how'd and, I miss that? And here's the president's mind. It's it's the, the that that little insight into his mind that he's still talking about the ratings of cable stations and whether they're covering a hurricane or the war. I mean, this the the mind of Donald Trump is a truly disturbing place. But this is not breaking news, is it? No, it's not. I mean, it's remarkable how how less we hear from him just because he's been sidelined from Twitter. I mean, it's really uh, a gift to us all. But I just I, I try to imagine sometimes what it's like in Mar-a-Lago or I don't know if he's in New Jersey now. Like how many televisions there are lining the walls, how yeah, many updates he gets from his little aides about who's saying what and what races he should get into and, you know, how much he should negotiate to get on Getter. I mean, it's just. 
it's got to be extremely weird. It, well, but they it, all it, think it, it's urgently important. Well, you know? and and it's still having it's still having an effect. Uh, so, can I share with you some fan mail we got? Is it real fan mail? It's it's fan mail. Yeah, it's I mean it's okay. real mail. Well, whether whether it? it's fa- it's former fan mail. Let me put it that. Way. Oh, that's there's what a, I was getting there's, at. There's that's fan what I was... mail. There, there's fan mail, and then there's former fan mail. Oh, you're thinking is it quote unquote fan mail? The you know, Shirley Sakes and Amanda Carpenter, you built this. You know, oh, you no, I was I was hoping fan mail like you guys are so awesome. Okay, you know, here we go. So <laughs> no, you can read you can read that on our weekend newsletters where where people t- talk about. Uh, Talk about the bulwark. Okay, but here's somebody, and I'm not going to name them, so don't don't worry about this. Of course, they're not listening anymore. <laughs> but um, this person uh, been listening to this or uh, the podcast for about a year. But now that we have a human being as president, your Republican guests are a bit too critical of this administration's best efforts in undoing all the meanest and stupid things Trump did intentionally. I'm done. So she's she's done with this. Bye. Well, no. See, look, I I I understand people's feelings, but I, again, you know, perhaps they they weren't taking us literally or seriously when we said that we were going to tell you what we thought that we were not promising you a safe space. And you know, when those of us are and and we've clearly aligned with people who are anti-Trump and everything, but you know, it, it's. You know, what we're saying at, at some point is, uh, please do not sail into that iceberg, M- Mr. President. I mean, that's, that's, but again, she was, she's upset that we were a bit too critical. I guess I just want to say this, Amanda. See, democracy is holding your elected officials accountable, right? They're holding, you know, them responsible for their decisions, you know, and, and criticizing, this is what's crude. This is the, the lesson that I've learned over the last decade is that criticizing people on your own team is is really important because the alternative is when you, you start thinking of politics as just that team tribal sport, mm-hmm. you know, the, that, you know, that, you know, and this is the mistake we made. You, you, it becomes part of your team and you never hold them accountable. You never criticize them. Uh, because the other side is always worse. One of the things that I think that we committed to, and I think we were very clear about it, is that we were not going to be tribal. We were not going to be team players and that we were going to hold everybody's feet to the fire. And also, I think sometimes to hold the people that you like, hold their feet to the fire is also important because you want them not to do stupid things that will blow them up. And, you know, we have several times been standing in the middle of the tracks, waving our arms, saying, you know, don't go this way. No, the bridge is out. This would be a really bad mistake. And and I'm really struck sometimes, and you're on cable a lot, how many of the the talking heads there, you know, made their careers as cheerleaders. And so they're, they're kind of used to, you know, being part of the team instead of stepping back and saying, no, I'm sorry, um, this is messed up. I have to give you my best opinion, my best judgment. And I think that's what we owe the audience. I mean, if you want somebody who is just going to, you know, do the party line, there are lots of people who are doing, doing all of that, but, but that's not what we're going to do here. And I understand that there are going to be some people who are going to be done with us because we don't, we, we didn't take off one team Jersey to put on another team Jersey. Yeah. And I think the point about sort of how, Cable news pits people into sides for the appearance of balance has conditioned people to think that if you speak on issues, you do have to pick a side. Right. Um, I, I, we're not 
picking a side necessarily. We learn where that gets you through the chump years. And I guess what it comes down to, and I think you'd probably agree with this, is that I don't, we don't judge presidents or anyone else by the stupid stick of of Donald Trump. I mean, comparing him to Trump and saying anything that is marginally better is worth it and good and justified isn't going to cut it here, period. Um, And that, I believe, is truly in everybody's interest, not only because it's the right thing to do, but Biden, you guys don't realize how much Biden has to do a good job. The only reason he won the election is because he pretty much got it perfect. One little thing going the wrong way, Donald Trump would have won. Biden needs to be a successful president. Otherwise, it makes it that much easier for Trump to come in in 2024. If we botch things in Afghanistan and we have terror attacks and COVID is never really managed and, you know, the threats to democracy continue to run amok and he looks like a bumbling fool who can't get a hold of the country, people are just going to walk away and look for that strong man once again. If he is worse than Hillary Clinton in 2024, Donald Trump will come back and win. That is why Biden has to be successful. He cannot afford to make mistakes. So if you judge him by the stupid stick, Trump is coming back. I I agree with you completely. And I think it's also important to realize that that if they come back, they will be worse than the first time around. The radicalization of the right is a truly extraordinary thing. You know, part of the, you know, we, we talk about the, you know, the, the, the authoritarian temptation. They, they are normalizing the, the notion that, that we just use our political power to crush our enemies and do whatever we like. I mean, this is the, the, the anti-liberalism of the right. Um, would be manifested in a restoration of a Trump administration. So, you know, for people who think that, you know, this is just sort of, you know, partisan back and forth. Look, Democrats have one main job. Do not screw this up to open the door for something that is genuinely ugly. Speaking of genuinely ugly, and, and, and I know maybe this is low-hanging fruit, but I but we, we, we still need to do it because I think it's important, again, to hold people accountable for what they're saying. So Madison Cawthorn is one of the most deplorable new members of the House of Representatives, along with the Lauren Boberts and the Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Paul Gosars of the world. And uh, you may have heard something about this. He's speaking at a Republican county event in North Carolina. And among other things, I mean, I, you know, he's he's an outspoken member of the Sedition Caucus. But if but if you want to know what we mean by the Sedition Caucus, it's somebody like Madison Cawthorn who is openly talking about the possibility of bloodshed. He's lying about the election. He said, if our election systems continue to be rigged and continue to be stolen, which it wasn't, then it's going to lead to one place. It's bloodshed. And then he talks about, as much as I am willing to defend our liberty, there's nothing I would dread more than having to pick up arms against a fellow American. Mm. Okay. He also says at one point, I will remove Joe Biden from office. And then when Kamala Harris inevitably screws up, we will take them down one at a time. And he mocks vaccines, he mocks masks, that sort of routine, I guess now. But he's also referring to the January 6th rioters as political hostages and political prisoners, and talks about attempts to bust them out. Okay, so if you think I'm taking this out of context, here's a little soundbite of Madison Cawthorn, who is, and stop me if you've heard this before, a sitting member of Congress and a member in good standing of the House Republican Conference, 
talking about the people who attacked the Capitol, who threatened to hang Mike Pence, uh, who wanted to overturn the election. He has now retconned this into they are political prisoners, they are political hostages who need to be busted out of solitary confinement. Listen to this. So this is something that we are trying to figure out everything out about. Um, there are some criminal activities going on when my office literally is sitting We have a mock law to be able to ask almost any federal agency any question we want. And when we're seeking answers, they are giving us the biggest one around that you possibly can imagine. And so uh, the, the big problem is we don't actually know where all the political prisoners are. And so if we were to actually be able to go and try and bust them out, let me tell you, the reason why they're ta they've taken these political prisoners is because they're trying to make an example to say, because they don't want to see the mass protest going on in Washington. They don't want to see people redressing their government for leaving 13 Marines to die in Afghanistan. Maybe you're going to call us to Washington. We are actually working on that one. Okay, you may not be able to hear that, but even he's talking about, you know, he's talking about how we, you know, um, somebody says, when are you going to call us to Washington again? We're actively mm -hmm. working on that one. Now, Adam Kinzinger, Republican from Illinois, pushed back. This is insane based on the total lie. This must stop. But he's got a fan. Okay, did you see J.D. Vance's hit tweet? Oh, Sedition Elegy? Okay, so The Hill had a tweet. Cawthorn calls jailed January 6th rioters political hostages, political prisoners. J.D. Vance retweeted that with one word, correct. Ugh. So here's a Republican U.S. Senate candidate, heartthrob of Fox News, basically saying, yeah, I'm, I'm all in on this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to follow Madison Cawthorn down the, down the sedition trail of thinking of these people who attack and attack cops, beat cops. Um, and, you know, think of the images of the way they were beating on the police officers and what they did uh, when they took over the Senate chamber. And, and now Madison Cawthorn is saying they're political hostages. J.D. Vance saying, correct, former guy all in on Ashley Babbitt being, you know, his uh, a, a martyr. So, Well, they're asking everyone to return to the scene of the crime. Yeah. There's a rally coming up. You know, if you didn't, if you weren't worried about September 11th and the anniversary and what could happen, possibly after we left... Afghanistan, and you have terrorists looking for a PR win, look forward to September 18th. I'm not saying they're the same, but I just, you know, I think about the Capitol being under attack and threat, and I'm scared for September. I mean, there's a rally being planned just for uh, the January 6th prisoners to go do another big rally there. And, you know, they have their defenders. This is a peaceful protest, but they're asking people to come back to the scene of the crime for justice for the people who are jailed, there's people in the DC jail. It's not far from there. I, I the, yeah, the cops no. are preparing. They're talking about putting up the fencing again, and I guess nobody can do or say anything about it. And Cawthorn is ratcheting up the pressure, saying, "Let's go bust them out." I, I imagine some people may get some ideas from that. I don't know. So, to your point, though, about why the Democrats shouldn't fuck this up. Uh, which yeah. is that it will be, bring people like this back into power. If Republicans, as expected, take control of the House of Representatives, people like mm -hmm. Madison Cawthorn will be in the majority. Lauren Boebert will be in the majority. 
um, Marjorie Taylor Greene will be in the majority. You know that Kevin McCarthy will not discipline them, hold them accountable in any way whatsoever. So I, this is- If this we is just the, talk about how mainstream the sort of aggressive posture is getting, I mean, this is sort of unrelated, but I've just been watching, no, it's I went not, to it, a, it, a it, county it, fair the other day, and there was unrelated. a Republican booth, yeah. and there was a big gun, uh, AR-15 image, pictured in the middle of a flag. And this was at like a family event. And, you know, sometimes I've seen gun raffles, that's normal. But like at a Republican tent, there's an AR-15 displayed in the middle of a flag. And then I saw, I came home and I saw Nancy Mace, you know, that nice Republican congressman from South Carolina. She's carrying a gun on her person at a faith and freedom event. I mean, this is like, you know, nice donor family event. Everybody else in khakis. There's an older woman and like she's sleeveless dresses. She's walking around jeans, tank top and a gun on her side. And I, that's such clear signaling. I mean, you know, people carry guns. That's fine. Um, This didn't seem like the type of event where you would need to have self-protection, but it's a signal. Like I am down with this. Um, and what, what makes it particularly galling with Nancy Mace, and The Atlantic did a big profile on her because she had spent about five minutes being willing to go, okay, I don't want to be part of this Trumpian tribe right after January 6th. She seemed like a normal human being. She's now signaling, I am totally in on all of this stuff. Yeah. She, she knows better, but she has to you know play like she is. So by the way, you know, in speaking of the normalization of all of this, I saw that you tweeted out about uh, what's been happening at school board meetings all around the country. Mm-hmm. This is the other thing where, um, you know, do, don't sleep on the kind of rhetoric, the kinds of threats that are going on all around the country where school boards are trying to do the right thing for their children and their staff, uh, mask mandates, uh, other sort of social distancing requirements and people showing up making the wildest ass threats. You know, you have the one guy in Pennsylvania running for something yes. or other saying that, you know, strong people need to come in and throw them out of office, you know, basically talking about coups and there are a lot of school board members who are looking at each other going, well, we didn't sign up for this. Why are we doing all of this? And they're walking away from their jobs. And, you know, you point out this is sort of another form of compassion fatigue. People are just tired of it at some point. People in, in who work in elections, who work in school boards, mm-hmm. are under mm-hmm. the fiercest grassroots attack. It's not just coming from the top. You know, it's yeah, metastasizing. Yeah, this is a broader thing, Charlie. Yeah. I'm so worried about you pointed out it's not to school board members, it's nurses. I also see it happening with Capitol Police. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. when people try to do the right thing and they go to the front lines of whatever their calling is, maybe it's in medicine, maybe it's in education, maybe it's in military, uh, maybe it's to go work elections, and they are put under threat, at some point they will act out of self-preservation, whether they have to preserve their personal safety, their uh, mental stability, their family, whatever it may be. But we are pushing good people out in so many sectors, in the government too. I mean, there's a lot of people that will run for office right now because they don't wanna go through the, the personal attacks and the threats. And what happens to our society when all these good people are pushed out by a vocal, agitated, conspiracy-driven minority. And this is just something I think about all the time because it seems to be happening almost everywhere you look. And these good people need somewhere to go and they need to be supported. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I don't think people should underestimate just the power of political exhaustion. And, and it's, not, it's not cowardice. It's just exhaustion. I just, I don't want to do no, this, this anymore. This reminds me. I can't, you, yeah. You, well, this came up in your conversation with um, Russell Moore yesterday. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was so good. You know, people should go back and listen to it if you haven't already. But he, when he was talking about how it always starts, and I just, I stopped in my track and I rewound it a couple of times because it, it spoke so clearly is that these problems always start when the people who point out the problems are attacked for pointing out the problem rather yeah. when then people coming together to fix it. And that's, I mean, it's in churches and schools and militaries, everywhere you look, when the people who point out the problems aren't supported and are ostracized, that's the beginning of the end. No, and, and, I, and I think that your, your point that they need to be supported is, is so strong because it is, it's particularly now with, you know, with the pandemic and the nature of politics, it's very easy to feel that you're completely alone. It's very easy to feel that you're living, you know, on, on an island. And, yeah. you know, some of us have been on an island for some time and we've gotten somewhat used to it, but, but, it, but it's, a, it's a lonely feeling. And so whether you're fighting for voting rights, whether you're fighting for sanity in education or integrity in elections, I think it's important to have groups and voices out there saying, hey, you're not alone. You are not the crazy one. You know, we, yeah, that's and, how, and, and there are, there that's are how we found us. each other, Charlie. <laughs> yes, exactly. So that's exactly that's no, I mean, this, this is, this is sort of our business model here. It's like, <laughs> we are not, you are not alone. You are not the nut job here. Not everybody <laughs> is going along with all of this. If you decide to take a stand for the, you know, a, a, a legitimate, reasonable stand, you know, you are not going to be completely isolated. Um, Okay, so let, let's talk about, I, I meant we're talking about January 6th and Madison Cawthorn referring to the hostages. The January 6th committee Oof, is, 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 is moving along um, and they are aggressively going after, and I mean that in, you know, in a positive way, going after phone records of a lot of people in Trump world. And um, I kind of feel the influence of our good friend Denver Riggleman, former congressman, yeah. who's been talking about this. I mean, he's, he has been on this podcast talking about the need to, you need to preserve these records. You need to find out, you know, who was talking to who on that day. Um, these guys are not playing around, are they? No. I mean, the first request that went out um, went to federal agencies asking them to look at and preserve all records about communications in the White House during the lead up to January 6th, and including, which I thought was interesting, attempts to place politically loyal personnel in senior positions across government after the election, um, which, I, which I think is key. And then there was another request on, on Friday um, that asked all these tech companies, Facebook, mm-hmm. Twitter, Google, um, for reviews, studies, reports, analysis, and communications regarding misinformation. Um, so not only are they looking at records of people in the White House, but also like how, what role did social media play? And I think this is interesting because a lot of people are looking at this committee investigation and be like, oh, who's going to go to jail? Like, that's not what this committee is going to do. There are, the Department of Justice is handling criminal investigations. But this is really good because they're not going to let social media companies off the hook for letting these lies and conspiracies and organizing uh, with the algorithmic power of social media off the hook. 
right? They're going to want an explanation of why they did this, how it happened, how those networks worked, and they're going to come under fire. But then the one I think that is really getting the media attention are the phone records yep. for all the people. So that, that was the last tranche to come through. And they're going to look at phone records for all the people you'd expect. I mean, Trump family members, members of Congress, Stop the Steel rally organizers. But it's not just, you know, who did they call and when? It's where, where were you located at that certain amount of time? Mm-hmm. What were your movements that day? And so when people describe this as sweeping, it, it, they are going after everything. And I've got to think that old Denver, Denver Regelman hasn't been on Twitter as much because he's been working, which is great. No, Den- Den- Denver's going to be uh, is is going to be a, a, a valuable asset. Okay, so you know we've talked about the Arizona audit, uh, which was supposed to be we supposed to get the report uh, <laughs> oh, la- yeah. last week from the cyber ninjas, and apparently they got sick, and amazingly they didn't come up with with the report. Um, the bad news, however, is this continues to spread around the, the country, and mm-hmm. um, I'm sorry to tell you. That even here in Wisconsin, um, where, you know, I, I, one time I had the fantasy that we were going to be a firewall of sanity. And of course, uh, that, mm-hmm. that didn't, that, that, that did not hold. Um, we, we found out that we learned this morning that the Republicans in the legislature are willing to spend $680,000 of taxpayer money. Uh, mm-hmm. on a forensic audit of the election. Um, so they're sticking the taxpayers with a $680,000 tab to uh, continue the fantasy of the big lie. And I have to tell you that it's almost worse than it sounds like because the Speaker of the State Assembly is Robin Voss. I've known him for years. Um, R- Robin Voss is one of those Republicans that knows this is complete bullshit. He knows that this is a fantasy. He knows that this is crack pottery. And yet he feels the need, once again, to appease the crackpots and the nutjobs in his own caucus. And as recently as last week, the word was, okay, you know, we're going to kind of throw some bones to you folks out there. We're going to let this one, you know, committee, you know, uh, you know, you know, send out subpoenas and things like that. But we're just going to go through the motions. They named a former Supreme Court justice to investigate this. Guy shows up at Mike Lindell's, the My Pillow Guys cybersecurity mm-hmm. conference. I mean, you know how that's going. But um, be, because everybody feels the need to suck up to the orange God King, Robin Boss gets on a private plane and flies down to Alabama and then posts pictures on Facebook of himself sitting with the former guy. And apparently as part of that suck up now, taxpayers in the state of Wisconsin are going to spend money that could have gone for school lunches, could have gone for hiring teachers or cops or firefighters or, uh, you know, all sorts of things that that we pay taxes for in the state of Wisconsin. They're going to use this to go through a complete bullshit forensic audit. And, and well, don't I, think the costs are going to stop there. Absolutely not. It's not going to. No one in Wisconsin thinks there was anything wrong with the election. We are used to close elections. We've had recounts. We are, The system here is really very well understood. And see, the thing about it is the guys like Robin Voss are the ones who know better and yet feel the need to pander to this kind of crap. So this is another case where you have, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the complete capitulation. So the party that used to be the party of Paul Ryan is now the party of going along with the big, you know, the, the big, the big lie and guys like Reince Priebus, who also knows better 
Mm-hmm. He's, he, he's got his fingers all over this thing. So Wisconsin's about to become an epicenter of, uh, of a complete, you know, of, of this, of this shit show. Well, this which, is why I believe even though the Arizona cyber ninjas haven't produced any kind of report, their audit has been a raging success. Yeah. They have proved a model that can be replicated in the States. And that model is you only need a couple of Trump supporting Republicans in the right places in state legislatures to unilaterally order for Senate audits using that state money. Um, you generally, the Arizona model showed that you only need the um, state Senate president and the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. It can vary from state to state, but they have subpoena power and they can subpoena records. And what happened to Arizona is that they subpoenaed the election equipment and the ballots and other voting equipment for their audit. And in the process, they rendered a lot of that equipment useless. The taxpayers will eat the cost on that to the tune of millions of dollars. And even though there's still no report, it's not over. And it's because of other people willing to indulge in this madness. Just last week, the Arizona Attorney General, General uh, Bronovich, who's running to replace Mark Kelly in the Senate, uh, said that he he thought the Maricopa Board of Supervisors wasn't complying enough with the investigation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he stayed out of it. And people have told me up and down, oh, he's a good guy. Yep. Governor Doug Ducey, he's a good guy. Well, at some point, they they turn a blind eye into it, and then they indulge it, and then they're in it. So don't tell me these people are good people who are standing on the sidelines unless they're pushing back like that Board of Supervisors did, like Stephen Richard did. Because they're just waiting, waiting for the conspiracy forces to take them over, and then they will fold. And it's going to happen and, in Pennsylvania, too. And, and these people, so this is why 2024 will be exponentially worse than 2020, because they were not there yet. They were not prepared to, to cave into these conspiracy theories then. But now we've had four years of marinating in these kinds of conspiracy theories, uh, this this kind of big lie, and the the pattern of caving in. Nobody's- well, let me scare people a little bit more. Yeah, okay. Joe Biden won by millions of votes, but he only won no. the Electoral College right. by 44,000 votes in Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia. And the Republicans in those state legislatures are ready to roll this time. By the time 2024 comes along, all the good people, you, your Brad Raffensburgers, yep. they are gone. Yep. And they have, they know and they understand now the power that state legislatures have potentially to cancel votes, overturn elections, send their own electors, and override the will of the people. These are practice runs. <sighs> yeah, no, I, I, I agree, which is why... I would suggest that all of the activist Democrats who are actively saying, we don't need you never Trumpers anymore, you people, you know, we don't need to make any common cause with you people like at the bulwark, uh, you know, maybe want to rethink that. At your that. peril. Sorry, at, I want to be haughty, but. Well, that's not at your peril. I mean, it's like, look, you either think this is an existential threat or you don't. Yeah, and, I guess it's at our either. peril. I shouldn't say at yours. I'm not being accusatory because no. I do think we're in this together. But we are very much. Let's, let's be realistic. Uh, the infrastructure deal is, is not the hottest thing. It's not the most important thing right now. No, it's not. It's COVID. It's threats to democracy. It's Afghanistan. Yes, I, I agree. So on that cheery note, Amanda Carpenter, thanks so much for coming back on the <laughs> podcast. And by the way, um, Amanda's going to be sitting in for me next Tuesday and Wednesday on the podcast. You will definitely want to tune in. And please do, because it'll be so embarrassing if I don't get the millions of downloads that Charlie does 
every week. Congratulations, Charlie. And again, reaching a new goal. What was it? Are you, was it 4 million? I did. Four point. We're we're about to count that high anymore. Well, it's interesting because I was I was I was pretty jazzed when we were consistently getting more than two million downloads a month. And this month, the month of August, we will exceed four and a half million downloads just for the month of August. So amazing. Congrats. Be- best is yet to come, we hope. Thanks for listening to the Bulwark Podcast today. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again. <laughs>